John Hendren, and you're listening to Botcast. This is episode 42, and our focus in this edition of the podcast is another violin piece by Bach, the Partita number two in D minor, BWV 1004. Our last episode, uh, I had not realized that so much time had passed since our last episode. The last episode was published on April 4th of 2016. And so what have I been up to? Uh, I guess I shouldn't have too many excuses, um, except that since around Christmas time, I have been listening to this piece uh, somewhat obsessively. Um, and I thought, you know what? It's, it's time to make an episode to feature this particular work. Um, we just opened and listened to an arrangement. I just mentioned that it was a, uh, a violin piece, right? And yet uh, this particular piece, and especially the fifth movement, which I'm going to spend the majority of this episode on, the Chicona, um, it really is has been so inspiring to so many musicians that it is, uh, it's not difficult to find arrangements of that piece. But I wanted to give you a taste of uh, something that um, maybe you hadn't heard. This is a recording that was released in 98 as a surprise. It's something that I must have run across. It appeared under the Christmas tree and uh, I said, where did this come from? I, I vaguely remember seeing the cover before. And that's what happens when you put things on an Amazon wish list and your parents find it. So uh, thanks to my mother who uh, got me the CD. The title of it is Bach de Occulta Filosofia. Uh, and the performer on lute is Jose Miguel Moreno. And he is accompanied by two other musicians, which you didn't hear in that clip. What you heard was the Correnti, or the, uh, the second movement of the five-movement partita. He's joined by Emma Kirkby, uh, or as I have heard it's pronounced, Emma Kirby, uh, and Carlos Mena, uh, a countertenor. And it was sort of a mystery. I opened this thing up. It has a really cool cover uh, of like headphone or wires or something. Um, loosely in the shape of a man's head, presumably Bach. And when you look at the uh, the track listing, it opens up with the Chicona, which has been renamed Chicon Tombeau. Uh, a tombeau is a, sort of a, a piece, a slow piece, that is uh, to immortalize somebody who has passed. And it started me on this sort of investigation uh, into the piece uh, and to what they were trying to do by adding singing parts to it. And I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, they then give us the first violin sonata, BWV 1001, with just lute. And then we get the second partita, just lute. And we get a second version of the Shikona on lute. And this 
this recording was interesting to me. It's not the quickest, uh, not the fastest uh, performance. Um, Moreno sort of takes his time. And I first auditioned it sitting in my uh, main listening space. Uh, I basically count three listening spaces where I listen to music. One is my car because I, I commute every day and uh, I have some time to listen to music. Uh, the second is at the computer, and that typically is with headphones on like I am right now. And the third is in a room that, uh, for better or worse, has the most expensive equipment. It's got you know, stereo speakers, big amplifier. Um, and if I want a serious listening experience, that's that's where I'll go. That's 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 my pastime. I don't go fishing. I don't uh, I don't do a, a whole. I don't have many expensive hobbies, and so that that's the one I've afforded myself uh, because I like music. And I remember putting this uh, on the the uh, stereo upstairs, and wow, was very impressed with the sound quality in this in this recording, uh, at least of the lute. Uh, there are some times when the singing that I find a little harsh, which is easily combated by turning down the volume. Uh, but the lute by itself really sounded good. And I'm like, hmm, has it been that long since I listened to the system up here? And then I swapped out and listened to another rendering, uh, if you will, by Nigel North. Uh, that's a recording I've had for quite some time where North is playing box lute works, including arrangements. And I I really didn't think the, at least the sound quality that it compared. And so I, I really liked this piece and I wanted to like the singing on top of it. And I just couldn't make sense of it. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit more about this piece. So Bach um, is naming, uh, for the most part, uh, his, um, his movements in Italian. He, he's borrowing uh, some Italian here. So we have an alamanda, a corrente, a serabanda, a giga, and then we have the ciccona. Um, and why would Bach use Italian here, right? Uh, we know that sometimes Bach would write in different languages. For instance, in the cello suites, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he, he writes the title page in a sort of a pseudo-French. He tries his hand at putting that in French. And we know there is some um, associations with with different places in his keyboard works, such as the French suites, the English suites, uh, and that may not be fair because these are titles that really Bach did not um, always apply himself to these pieces, right? Uh, they kind of kind of came after, but. It's interesting that he chose Italian, and I, I think I, I know why. I think it's probably not that big of a mystery. We have in Italy the sort of hotbed of violin virtuosity. The violin came into its own, not in Germany, not in France, not in England. It came into its own in Italy. And so I think it's probably a reference back to Italy and its tradition of violin playing. Um, I mentioned it has five movements. And so a partita is, is a fancy name Bach has given to a suite, in other words. Um, and we have the opening piece that is a medium speed. We have the second, which a corrente is usually a faster dance. Uh, 
Then we have a sarabande, a, a slower movement in, in three. We have a jig, which usually is in something like a, a six eight or twelve eight. And then, well, you scratch, kind of scratch your head, like why is there more? So let's listen to the first movement uh, of this partita, the alamand or alamanda, if we're going to use uh, box language. And uh, I'm not going to tell you anything about the performer at first. I just want you to sort of uh, take in the style and we'll go from there. I'd love it if you and I were in a room and I could ask you some, some pointed questions. And one of the questions I'd order ask you would be, like, what did you notice, right? And it's, it's maybe hard for you to notice things in the way I want you to because, number one, this piece may already be familiar to you, right? If you are a fan of Bach and you know any of Bach's instrumental works, you likely know this piece or you've heard it before. And so it, it might be somewhat of a loaded question. There's something very interesting that happens at the beginning of this piece. Now, that reading was by John Holloway. Uh, he released this on the ECM New Series label, um, all the sonatas and partitas, and it's been recorded in a very reverberant space, in a basically a monastery that has some beautiful acoustics on the Baroque violin. So that is a, a Baroque... Uh, violin sound that we hear. Uh, I believe he's, if I, my memory serves correct, I don't have the booklet in front of me, but he's typically playing on a, a copy of an Amati by Michel de Hoog. I hope pronouncing that Dutch name right, but um, he always has a very consistent sound because he, I think he's primarily uses the same instrument. And so uh, it's 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 a nice recording. I, I kind of consider it kind of middle of the road. He doesn't he doesn't do anything too flashy, doesn't do anything too controversial, and yet there is some nuance in what we heard. Before I reveal what I wanted you to hear in that, let's listen to one other performer open the Alamanda from the second partita. <laughs> you to listen to this piece carefully by yourself because one of the things I hear is Bach's attempt at kind of two voices that are one but there seems to be in this movement some call and answer we have Bach going into the higher register and then it seems like there's an answer in the lower register 
And the clue to this for me is the beginning and the ending. So in this clip that I took from Hilary Hahn uh, from her album on Sony Classical entitled Plays Bach, Hilary Hahn Plays Bach, she gives us the second partita and she's playing on a modern violin and she's more, more or less a mainstream composer. So she's using vibrato, which is, is more palpable. You notice that she takes the mood a little slower but it's those beginning notes. Da-da! And you really have to listen carefully. It's not one note. The violinist is sounding that same note on two strings. One presumably an open string, the other not an open string. And that there is a tension there because it is very difficult, especially if you're employing vibrato, to get those two notes perfectly in sync. And there's something that happens when you get them nearly in sync in pitch. And that's that on the violin, it just sort of, it just pops. And the note, uh, that single note that's being played on two strings, it just seems to like bloom. Uh, and we notice it when you when you start the movement. If you haven't heard that before, Go rewind and listen to it again, or on your own recording. Listen to somebody play it, because it's kind of a unique sound. And then at the end of the movement, Bach separates the same note uh, apart, and so we get a uh, more discernible chord there. So I just thought it was kind of an interesting piece to the Alamon that he's using a single voice, except when these notes sort of cross over and then we get the same note on different strings uh, it it's showing off I, I think some of technique uh, to be able to do that because it is if you ever have had the pleasure of playing a string instrument no matter you know violin viola cello when you do that when you play the same note it, it's just something special in the instrument and it and it really speaks to perhaps uh, unity the idea is something together, and then at the end, those things that were together are apart. And I don't want to read too much into what Bach may have been saying there. There are certainly uh, people that are probably better informed than me who have uh, suggested a theme to this piece in particular. There are some that, that, that make references to the entire set of, this, of the six, uh, the three sonatas and three partitas. But this one especially um, gets a sort of story behind it, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll work up to that. But I want you to hear that first movement in sort of its native garb, if you will, uh, for violin. And I want to give you a taste of maybe some of the differences between an approach on the Baroque violin and an approach on the modern violin. So in the Corrente, Bach decides to finally kind of give the violin its due. He introduces some double stopping, gives us some chords, and he places them on rhythmically important 
parts of this little dance. It's kind of a jaunty thing. I almost I almost picture like a sailor uh, just pulling into port, uh, a pirate maybe, and, and this this little tune is is being uh, played on the ship as you walk. I, I don't know. I have that reference, um, but it's it's sort of a little jaunty little little dance going on, and he introduces multiple stops playing chords, and then he just leaves it alone, right? Those 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 two notes come together, and then you're on your own for a while. And he's you could even make the argument that he's also playing with the high register, low register thing there. He, he kind of goes up, then he goes back down. And there's this idea of duality, except now the duality is a little different. We're playing in concert together. We're making harmony together. This recording, incidentally, is by the uh, Russian violinist Victoria Mulova. And this was, I don't have a date on this recording, unfortunately, uh, at least looking at the digital digital rip that I have in my computer. It came on the Philips label, and I believe it's quite early for Molova. Uh, she was an emerging artist. This is, uh, the title of the album is just Partitas for Violin Solo. And it contains three partitas, the first, second, and third. Um... And Malova, since playing on a modern violin there and a modern bow, has adopted a period approach for Baroque music. And so I wanted to give you a contrast. Same performer, obviously separated by some time, but she then recorded the complete set of partitas and sonatas on a Baroque violin. And there has been some controversy about her Baroque violin playing. Some say that you know, she's she's not playing on a, a purely Baroque violin, whatever that may be. Um, to give a, a quick distinction between the two instruments, and I think I've gone over this before, but the body of the violin more or less is the same. You'll have differences in the height of the bridge that raises the strings. You'll have a difference in the angle and length of the fingerboard with the modern violin being longer and having a, a more um, pushed back angle off the instrument uh, to facilitate the uh, going to, to touch notes down lower on the fingerboard to get higher notes. Uh, in addition to that, um, the material used for strings changes on a Baroque violin. Usually we're talking sheep gut on a Baroque violin or steel wound strings on a modern violin. And the modern violin if it was such a thing and there was only you know, one model out there called the modern violin, which is not true, but it's pretty much standardized. Um, that instrument evolved over time to be to project louder, to accommodate new music that was being written for it, to sort of push the boundaries. Uh, one of the things that I think is probably most, um, most contributes to a difference in sound uh, in addition to all of that, is the bow that's used. And so, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Malova is, in this recording, on the Onyx label, is playing uh, a, a modern violin, but with the uh, appropriate natural uh, strings and a um, an older-style bow. And so there's question about the neck, I guess. I, I really don't want to get into that. Uh, she do, is taking a different approach. Uh, she has since been performing with a number of period uh, ensembles. 
with this Baroque aesthetic. And to me, it seems like she's being embraced by the community, and I applaud her for uh, trying to uh, go back to the music's origins and recreate uh, some of the conditions by which or through which this music was um, first composed. As you probably know from my previous episodes, I really don't want to establish a favorite method of playing this music. I think there is opportunities, and uh, both from the uh, practical perspective as well as the philosophical, that um, this music can be enjoyed in a number of ways. But when I really want to get down and enjoy kind of what Bach put in front of us, I, I do kind of favor the period approach. Um, where I loosen my opinion is usually when we we make a, a, a radical departure, right? We have arrangements. Um, one of my favorite recordings, we're not going to hear it, maybe we'll hear it in this, in this episode, but I wasn't planning on sharing it, is the Paul Galbraith recording. Uh, he performs Bach's sonatas and partitas on a modified guitar. And so if you reference that, you know, could it be arranged for lute? Certainly. Could it be arranged for guitar? It works. But in order to fully realize the pieces, he's he has added strings to the guitar. He's added a, um, an extension to the, the bottom of the guitar, and, and it's, it's connected to this amplification box that he's constructed. And you'll say, my gosh, that's, that's not authentic at all. And I would argue it is authentic. It's authentic to the time, and you have an an artist who is capable and wanting to express himself through their instrument and what, what's wrong with rearranging it. Um, and so I have a probably, uh, I want to say a unique perspective on it. I have my own personal perspective on that. So um, I always think it's worth exposing listeners to the podcast to all these variety of uh, interpretations out there because I think there is something to be found in, in every one of them. Even, even though I have my favorites, um, it's hard for some people to see things in, in gray. Everybody wants to see things in black and white, I f sometimes find, but um, there, there is beauty in, in all corners. And so, in this next example, we're going to hear Victoria Malova again with the second movement from the second partita, the Corrente.
So I went ahead and continued uh, Malova's second recording of the Sonata Partitas with the Sarabande. Uh, Sarabande, slower movement, right? Contrast what we just heard, the kind of jaunty, uh, I'm going to call it the pirate song. And we get this sort of uh, interesting approach that Malova adopts, and that is to separate the triple stop to so sort of roll it which is not what I'm used to hearing. Um, and that is a point of debate amongst violinists. How do we play these multiple stopped uh, figures in box violin music? Do you roll into it? Do you try to uh, accent the bass note and then hold the two above? And uh, I don't really find a, a singular uh, way to approach it. Uh, I find this one kind of interesting. I also find interesting in listening to it how Bach is now treating the multiple voices. He's he's much more dependent now on playing chords in this piece. And it, it seems to me if we're, we're going to take this theme that I've presented you, this idea of, of starting it with one single note, uh, separating two ideas, a high part and a low part, and then coming together at the end at an octave, and in the second movement, giving hints of coming together, but really it mostly being for one voice. Uh, and then in this third movement where, where two people perhaps are, are coming together. Now, again, don't want to read too much into this, uh, but there is something to be said. Is Bach trying to uh, consider these voices as personas? Um, I want to give you one other flavor of this uh, piece where we don't get that same rolling, so you kind of get a, um, a real statement of what I'm talking about in the way Malova has approached the multiple stops in the Sarabande. <laughs> reading we get a whole different sense of how to play this. Um, this is a really exciting recording that came out um, very recently. Uh, I happened to come across it um, through an Amazon link and it came uh, overseas. It was published uh, by a Japanese label. This is Enrico Onofri, uh, uh, Italian Baroque violinist. Um, and his CD has three of Bach's works, B2V1, 1004, 1006, so two partitas and a sonata. And he says in the notes that he performed the ones he's most familiar with and the ones he's most confident in playing with no promise of continuing the set. And I really hope he's, he's only kidding because I really like uh, some of his artistic vision and his, uh, his, the way he plays it. And... This is a great example. Um, he he pretty squarely just kind of leans in there. Um, the phrasing is very different. He seems to be to be pushing this movement along just a little bit faster than maybe what we're used to. But to me, it makes sense. The phrasing makes sense, and so I really 
uh, liked it, and I think it was enough of a contrast for you to hear. One of the things that's most jarring when you hear his interpretation against Victoria Malova's is pitch. And so in that quest for um, the period sound, uh, violinists are constantly playing with all of the variables, right? And so Onofre adopts um, a, a different pitch center than Malova. And there have been, uh, as I go through all the recordings I have of these pieces, there's, you know, 420s adopted, 415s adopted, um, things as low as, as 390 is sometimes adopted, and then sometimes as high as 460 is adopted. And who knows, right? Uh, you could show up with your violin. You're not playing with anybody else. Who cares what you tune it to, except that you're probably going to choose a tuning that your instrument just seems to feel relaxed in and feels comfortable in. And there are some different opinions about what the standard pitch would have been at certain times in certain cities. Uh, I like the fact that people are experimenting and giving us different uh, interpretations using some of these variables as uh, part of their art. And so um, just know that as you go and switch between recordings, if it sounds like, wait a minute, did they transpose it? No, they just had their instrument tuned at a different uh, version of A. So that was the Sarabande. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue with uh, Mr. Onofre's jig or jiga. Um, probably mispronouncing the Italian there. I'm going to call it a jig since I know how to say jig in English. Uh, this is the fourth movement of Bach's partita for solo violin, number two in D minor. you hate me for stopping it don't you <laughs> that that music it just goes on and on and there's this momentum behind it and isn't it glorious uh, it is hard to put into words what makes that music so uh, easy to listen to and so fun to listen to this the second clip there uh, went to Rachel Podger she recorded the Sonata and Partitas on two different releases on the channel classics label and this, this, this recording isn't that new. Uh, she did this some years ago. And I really wanted to juxtapose these two together for a couple of reasons. I think the sound quality, the, the clarity, if you will, in the Podger recording is perhaps superior to the one in the Nofri recording. Uh, when I listened to Enrico Nofri's album first, I, I had a high expectations for it. I put it on and listened to it. I really loved it. 
And then when you do that back-to-back -back recording, you're like, hmm, it's either the microphone's different or it's a little closer or uh, I think but they both have a similar acoustic, but there's just a little bit more clarity in the sound. And so from the recording standpoint, I really like this recording by Podger. I also think that both violinists aren't that far apart in their interpretation. They're, they're very purposefully uh, trying to uh, give a very um, good articulation on so many of those notes. And as we listen to Podger there, she kind of varies it. She does a little bit of slurring there, which is why you want that nice, crisp, clean articulation every note. Because when you get to the slurs, you really hear the difference. The one thing that Onofre does not do in this, which surprised me a little bit, um, and I don't, I didn't play it long enough for you really to get it, is the, is the idea of an echo technique that Bach uses. And I think Podger makes more out of that. And what I'm talking about is this idea that it really emerged in, earlier in the Baroque period with, with instrumental music, and it was sort of a special effect, right? We have we go to the movies now. We have surround sound, and so the, the idea back then was, well, could we do an echo? And so what composers did it almost became a fad that you would write these echo moments into music, and and there's a famous um, violin piece, and the the composer is going to escape me. It might be Marini, uh, who does this. Um, I can remember the album. There's an album with. Uh, Andrew Manzi and Stanley Ritchie and John Holloway on Harmonia Mundi, three parts on a ground. And in that, they played this echo piece for violins. And, and basically, you have three violinists. One is up close with the other performers with the basso continuo, and then the second one is, is, is further away. And the third one might be up, maybe all the way in the back, if we we're considering a, a concert performance, would be in the back of the hall. Um, obviously, they probably weren't performing that song in a hall when it was composed. But the idea is that you'd have a line played by one and then it's repeated by the other and it makes it sound like an echo. And composers started to do that effect in very much what we heard Bach here. The idea is that we hear a phrase and then we repeat it and it's a sort of echo. And what it makes us wonder what Bach was thinking of, for instance, in the first uh, prelude of the Preludes and Fugues for keyboard, BWV 846, the one in C major that so many people can play because it's kind of easy. Those, these arpeggiations, right? And the arpeggiations, well, they they repeat themselves, right? Is that an echo technique? And most people don't play it that way, but every once in a while you'll get a, a pianist or a performer who's playing that and they they seem to capitalize upon that, that concept. Podger does that here. And the other reason I point it out is because this piece pretty much is for a single line, right? But then we have this idea of an echo put in there. And could it be Bach pointing at once again the idea of this duality in the piece? We're not putting the notes together, we're not playing chords, but we're chasing one another. And then we get to the big piece, the Chacona. So historically, and it's now for me the time to introduce the story here. Um, there's lots of stories about where Bach wrote these. At one point, there's a story that Bach was in prison and wrote these pieces. He was just bored with himself. He was locked up because he was being kind of a, a jerk, and uh, they locked him up. 
and they gave him some sheet music, and you can imagine he might have had his violin with him, and he was allowed to sit there and compose music. Um, we know that these pieces, these six uh, pieces for the violin, in connection with the six pieces for cello, were well regarded by his family. Like, it wasn't like these were just found in a shoebox one day, right? His family knew he wrote these. They knew they were high quality. What I don't think is that the Bach family probably didn't understand of what high quality they, what they really had. Uh, and that's the hard part for us to imagine. Today, I have this extreme luxury of having, you know, thousands of albums and the ability to compare one composer to the other from different parts of the world, from different parts of history. And I can just sit there and, and compare and say, well, that one's better. These folks didn't have it, right? And for some of them, especially if they weren't musicians themselves, they might not fully remember what they heard. They're probably going to be stuck with the emotion of what they heard. Like, oh, I heard that guy, Von Westhoff, played a really good solo violin sonata. And somebody else says something about it. And 20 years later, somebody tries to write one themselves. And they really don't even have the model. They just have the memory. Uh, and that's certainly possible. And so when we get to box music, I really don't think... I mean, they, they knew it was a high regard, but I don't think they really, really knew uh, what their father had done. And I want to share with you a, a quote, and uh, I can put some of this in the show notes. I actually started writing the show notes for this, um, this episode the night before, and when I set out to do this recording, I found out my computer was... Uh, recording my voice like a mouse, everything I said into the microphone was uh, double speed and high. And so after a software update and a refresh of the computer, I think I'm in good hands with uh, the pitch of my voice now. But this quote that I found in doing a little research comes from somebody who kind of knew music. Uh, he's somewhat familiar with orchestras and things like that, Johannes Brahms. Um, he said this about the fifth movement of the second partita, the famous Chaconne. On one stave for a small instrument, the man writes a whole world of the deepest thoughts and most powerful of feelings. If I imagined that I could have created, even conceived the piece, I am quite certain that the excess of excitement and earth-shattering experience would have driven me out of my mind. If one doesn't have the greatest violinist around, now note that, he says doesn't have the greatest violinist. He knew this was high art. He knew this was challenging music. Then it is well the most beautiful pleasure to simply listen to its sound in one's mind. That's, that's quite a quote about a piece of music, quite an endorsement, you would say. Um, so people knew this was, was kind of important, right? This is a big piece. Um, I just recently got a new recording, newish. Um, the first edition came out in 2010, which includes this Shakona by the violinist Isabel Faust. This is a Harmonia Mundi release. More recently, she's released the second half of the Sonatas and Partitas on the same label. And just to give you a timing there, because timing is important to, to consider 
the length of something. I really should be counting measures or something or counting notes. But the first movement that we listen to in her recording is five and a half minutes. The second is two and a half. The third, that Sarabon was 4.22. The jig, three and a half minutes. And then we get to the Chaconne. It's a big deal. It's She plays it at 12 and a half minutes. Uh, I have some performances, a lot of performances around 13 or so, 13, 14. And if we went back to Paul Galbraith on the on the guitar, he almost takes full 20 minutes to perform this piece. This is one of those showstoppers. It's long. It's big. You search for it on YouTube. You're going to be treated to all kinds of people playing this and be able to see them play it live. And, you know, I could tell you about all kinds of things that are great about some of those. I've enjoyed watching them. It's one of those pieces that's just so big and so full of, I don't know what to call it, emotion. You can call it, say, it's full of rich musical material. You could say it's rich, full of humanity. I don't know, but it, it, it's a big piece. And we kind of wonder, like with box, maybe Fifth Brandenburg Concerto, where he gives us huge, leaves us, in other words, this huge solo for, for, for the harpsichord by itself. We think, wow, what, what was he thinking there, right? And you, we kind of easily explain it. Well, that's a cadenza, and maybe that is of the flavor that Bach would have left us if he were performing this without writing all that out. But he did write it all out, which is kind of cool because we have this record. But this isn't like that piece. This is a piece that's a dance form. Uh, it's a little strange that he calls it a shakona, but it um, commentators have said, well, it's not strictly a shakona, it's more like a pasacalia. Um, it's it's most sent the most important thing for you to know about it is that it has this repeating bass line and the repeating bass line gives it sort of a harmonic push and Bach uses this repetition this ostinato if you will to basically give us variations on the theme that we hear and it's it's a it's a pretty uh, cool piece of music, but we start to ask questions like, oh, where did it come from? Why, 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 why? And you look at the history of, of when this piece was uh, written, it's a little strange, but something kind of big happened during Bach's life at this time. And the weird part about it is, is that we believe he wrote these pieces before he went away on a trip. Whether he's in prison or not, We'll let the historians dictate that for us. But he goes on a trip, and he comes back, and he discovers that his wife has passed. Maria Barbara Bach not only is dead, she's already been buried. And you can only imagine when somebody you love or care about has passed, and it's this huge shock. And some see this piece as a reaction to uh, her death. And whether or not you want to believe that, that I'll leave up to you. Uh, there's certainly enough evidence uh, from my point of view to suggest that that is a very likely scenario. The funny thing is about it is the timing. Um, the paper that this was written on uh, likely was paper Bach sourced on his trip. And so the question is, did the Shakona get written before he left? Did it get elaborated on when he came back? Or did it get fully composed when he came back? 
I don't put too much stock in that the paper was older than when we think he came up with the pieces, because he certainly could have rewrote it out, um, working off sketches that have been since lost. Uh, many comment on the high quality of the calligraphy in these pieces, which seems to suggest that Bach was taking his time at writing it. So I'm not surprised if he rewrote it. Um, what I am surprised is he takes a piece of music that could have been a, just a four-movement piece, and we get this sort of appendix to it, which is the little clue to me, at least, that mm, something might be up with this piece. Maybe there is a story behind it. Maybe it is a tombeau uh, to his uh, recently departed wife. And so I'd like to give you uh, a little taste. Enjoy. Okay, okay, I tricked you. Different key altogether. So this is Bieber, uh, not Bach. Bieber's um, Rosary Sonata or Mystery Sonata, the last one, the, the Guardian Angel, as it's called. And I can't help but see similarities in what Bieber calls a Passacaglia and Bach's Chaconne. The idea that we start with this descending... Uh, pattern this that gets repeated and then we, we put harmony on top and it, it just sort of organically grows from a simple idea and becomes a complex idea. Uh, that recording is is darn well one of my favorites. It's by Reinhard Goebel and that uh, was really his last solo recording uh, on the violin and before he suffered an accident um, uh, with his hand and he later came to lead his ensemble Musica Antigua Colm, but uh, that was at his sort of maybe height before the accident. The recording was published in 1990 on DG Archive, and I discovered it in uh, this recording in college. I never really knew who uh, Bieber was. I, I actually first heard the recording of Bieber by Romanesca with Andrew Manzi, and this was a follow-up. I had no idea what this was about, the cover was kind of scary. It's this kind of goldish uh, Virgin Mary holding Jesus. I'm like, what kind of what kind of music is this? And I'm like, wow, it's rich. Uh, Bieber, of course, was one of the great German violinists before Bach's time, uh, generation before, if you will, and he leaves us this interesting piece for solo violin. Now he wasn't the only one to leave us solo violin music. Uh, I mentioned von Westhoff before who, what I would say is between Bieber and Bach, uh, wrote uh, sonatas for the, for the solo violin. And with Bach's Chacona, I, I just can't, again, separate myself from wondering if he was at all familiar with this. And of course, we know Bach kept a very rich library of music. He was into copying the music of others, reworking it, rearranging it, and learning from... Uh, other composers in, in a very sort of schoolboyish way, you know, with with the text in front of him and learning from others. And we don't have evidence that he owned this music by Bieber. 
But could it have been that he heard of it or that he heard somebody perform a memory of it? We don't, we don't know. But I can't help but wonder that if this wasn't a model for Bach. So let's get into Bach's Shakona. So somewhat unlike Bieber, Bach is making more of a sort of a chordal statement, right? Full harmony straight from the get-go. This is a performance by Janine Jansen. She is um, kind of an up-and-coming young violinist who has recorded a, a DECA release of the music of Bach along with two of her colleagues. And the majority of the CD, which was released in 2007, is arrangements of Bach's partitas and three-part inventions, excuse me, not partitas, his two-part and three-part inventions for the keyboard. And she is joined by Maxim Ryzenov and Torleif Thedin, Thedin um, on this release. And in the center of it, to separate the two-part and the three-part inventions, she adds in the, the partita number two, which is a nice treat, nice change of pace. And I, I really appreciate her sound. She's playing on a modern violin, but she sort of adopts some more historical mannerisms, if you will. Uh, she's not using a heavy vibrato. She's a very clean sound. Um, really, really like her interpretation. I really enjoyed this whole album, in fact. Uh, and again, it's a testament to how well Bach uh, translates to uh, arrangements. Uh, and so that's that's a really neat recording for you guys to check out. What I want you to hear in that opening is, is just the tone here. This piece sometimes is just performed on its own because it's such a big piece. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has, you know, it is sort of a, a, a big statement. Duh. Da, 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 da. I mean, you can even sing it, right? Even though we've got this full harmony, it's very easy for us to sing. So, big piece of music by Bach really gets emotions stirring in listeners, and you better believe this piece has been studied to the tilt. And so, as it happens, um, a German professor of violin publishes a study and she's looking at a couple of things. She's looking at this piece from a numero, a numero, blah, I'm gonna, a numerology perspective. And that is to say we knew we know that Bach was into games with numbers and puzzles. 
we know that Bach was into this sort of archaic uh, idea, if you will, that we could translate um, words into numbers and into music. And so they started to analyze the number of notes in this piece and came up with some startling conclusions um, about numerology as, as, uh, as a way to analyze this piece. Uh, of course, it's something you really can't hear. Nobody counts the number of notes. Nobody's really going to know how many notes there are, what the relationships are between the notes in one movement to the notes of the other. But some strange things happen. Some strange coincidences happen when you take the letters in your wife's name and add the numbers up, and it just happens to be the number of measures in the piece of music. A little strange, isn't it? And so people start to think maybe this was written about his wife who just passed away. Um, I read a number of years ago, I was actually getting my second music degree, and this book came out, and I just I got it from the library, and I, I couldn't stop reading it. I started reading it. It's just so incredible. It's called The Bible Code. Uh, if you are as old as me, you remember, remember when this came out. And the idea was that if you took passages out of the Bible and translated them into numbers— so you took Hebrew words and whatnot, you would come out and you would do these like crossword puzzle type grids that they had. And they were trying to reveal to you that there was a code in the Bible and they would spell things out. And, you know, you would see atrocities that happened. And so you might see, you know, um, certain words crisscross with the other. And, and the, the idea was, oh, look, the, the Bible has foretold, you know, World War II or something. Um it was an interesting concept. I got caught up in it. I thought it was really interesting. And at the same time, of course, I know Bach is kind of playing with some of these similar ideas in his music, and uh, it always has fascinated me. So it, it is a fascination, but the, the telling thing for this research wasn't just the numerology. It was the identification of themes from other pieces Bach had written. And these pieces weren't necessarily quotes of Bach's music. These are quotes of hymn tunes that would have been familiar to many in his lifetime. These are pieces such as Christ Lag and Todes Banden, this, this you know, Luther theme that uh, got impregnated into Bach's organ works in his uh, cantata, B2B number four, um, and little snippets. Now, little snippets of music that's that simple, I, I don't know if you just told me that, like, like there's... Bach is quoting other pieces in this piece. And I might say, okay, but you know, Bach is writing a lot of music. Isn't it just a coincidence that maybe it's kind of the melody here or a counter melody over there kind of sounds like uh, one of these pieces that maybe Bach was writing at church at the time? You know, I, I really didn't know. And so that's why in this recording, entitled once again, De Occulta Philosophia, I got that right. Yes, Philosophia, uh, by Jose Miguel Moreno. They apply the research from this article, and they hire Emma and her friend Carlos to sing these borrowed snippets of music on top of the chaconne. And it just so happens that there's some themes behind these songs. For instance, Christ Lag and Todes Banden. It's all about Christ being uh, 
killed on the cross, right? It's, a, it's an Easter cantata. So you take a theme like death, you look at the numerology, and people are pointing fingers and saying, there is no question this piece has something to do with the death of Bach's wife. Now, I have questions about people performing source material on top of something Bach wrote that's perfectly, perfectly good on its own. What is the point? And so I'm going to let you listen to some of this, and you can make you can form your own opinion. And I'll I'll give you some of my opinions, of course. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not shy about doing that. But here is what has been titled the Chacon dash Tombeau, Christlag and Todesbanden, after the violin partita number two in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed on lute and sung by Emma Kirby and Carlos Mena. Interesting, isn't it? So the vocal piece, the vocal lines, if you will, the little fragments, are stretched and they are sort of pure and long and we can hear that echoed in the instrumental music, in this case the arrangement for lute, <coughs> excuse me, and we hear that and we notice that Bach is embellishing, which really isn't out of Baroque character. And I... I just am kind of fascinated by this idea, but the sound, the resulting sound is just a piece of music, uh, is I, I'm conflicted by it. Because the first time I listened to it, and I had kept an open mind, I'm listening to it, I really like uh, the voices, I like the lute, I'm listening, I'm listening, and I'm like, this is like walking past a practice room. When you're at a music school, you have to practice a lot if you're a musician, right? You either are singing or you're playing your instrument. And these practice rooms are rooms next to another. They're somewhat soundproof. They have doors, they close. But as you're walking down the hallway, past practice room, past practice room, you hear everybody's little snippets, right? And it, it's sort of an interesting place to be because you hear all kinds of notes and music and licks and things that, that really don't belong together. But it gives you this kind of interesting feeling. It's hard to describe. 
where I went to school, you could also walk outside because the practice rooms opened to the outside, and there was like a big, you know, multi-story building, an alleyway, and when these windows were open, you'd hear people practicing piano scales and violin licks and saxophone. And, and frankly, if you really just liked hanging out and you didn't have a place to go, it was a cool place to hang out because all these things were intermingling. And that's the kind of sense this gave me, that that people were performing different music that didn't belong together, but somehow at that point in time, it just seemed to kind of lock into place somehow. Uh, I don't know that if this is really great music. I don't I, I don't know. Uh, I'm inclined to say if I really want to enjoy Bach's Chacon, I'm going to go to uh, the last movement, the last track on the CD, and I'll listen to it by itself. Yet I'm fascinated by going back and listening to it again because I don't really think... Well, first of all, I know Bach never intended us to have two singers on top of his violent piece. And so if we know that, we either and we have created this recording, there's there's two possibilities. One, we're doing it simply for illustration purposes. We're doing it for historical purposes to illustrate a theory that somebody came up with in a paper. And that's there is certainly a rationale for recording that. The second um, is that we're trying to create some kind of new music out of it that we're going to appreciate something out totally out of context. And for me, this is like arranging Bach for the accordion or, um, uh, well, playing Bach's Chacon on the grand piano, right? We have Mr. Busoni who rearranged the Chacon for solo piano. I love it. It's a wonderful piece, the arrangement of this very piece. Um, I think I've shared with you before that I I'm, I'm really like the uh, new and up-and-coming harpsichordist Jean Rondeau, and in his album um, Imagine, he plays the Bach Chaconne, but an arrangement for one hand by Brahms, but plays it on the harpsichord. To me, it's a very smart arrangement. In fact, it's so smart, let's give it a listen. Once again, we get the opening of this piece, and the texture, of course, is very different. The clarity that the harpsichord brings to the piece, um, the, the clean recording. And I, I have to say that um, comparing the comparing a piano version, it's a, it's a different arrangement for grand piano by Busoni, um, that... I think Busoni amplifies the Bach Chaconne for the grand piano, what the grand piano is capable of. 
And, and here is a very modest rendition for one hand. And Rondeau, I believe, plays it with both hands and adds some Baroque elements to it. He's, he's adding ornamentation and whatnot to give it a, a very Baroque flavor. But he's, he's using the, the Brahms arrangement of the piece. Remember that Brahms loves this piece um, to, pro, to adapt it for his instrument. And of all the pieces that Rondeau puts in this 2015 release on Arado, again, the name of the album is Bach Imagine, he records the lute suite BWV 997. He gives us uh, four movements from the Violent Sonata, BWV 1003. He gives us the Chaconne from the Partita. He gives us the Flute Partita, BWV 1013, the Italian Concerto, and not an arrangement. That's the original that Bach wrote for um, solo keyboard. And then he gives us a little bit of BWV 1005 and then something from the cello suite, the the minuets from the first cello suite in G major. So it's sort of a hodgepodge of Bach pieces that are sort of reimagined, if you will, for the harpsichord when uh, only one of them was really written for it. And yet of all those tracks, this is the one I keep coming back to. It probably is, if I were to, to argue with somebody, the, the finest piece of music on the CD. And so it's no surprise that I'd be going back to it and going back to it. But I really, it stood the test of time and I really like the arrangement, which once again tells me how versatile Bach's writing is. Um, the music is rich. The The way... Bach goes from this intro and, and where he goes, uh, even to the point of, of turning it into the major mode for a period before uh, ending the piece, uh, it, it's just monumental. And when you listen to it, what I want you to get out of it is there are nuances in performance. There are nuances in the approach people take, whether they're taking a modern approach on a violin with vibrato which I really can't stand. I don't think it belongs in this music. In fact, when Bach is writing so much polyphonic music for the violin with these double and triple stops, I don't know how you really make the case for continuous vibrato because you, you can't vibrate all the whole hand at once to get a vibrato out of, out of these chords. At least to my ears, it sounds uh, strange. And so when you look at some historical recordings that, that, that people like a Milstein... Um, or, or even like an Isaac Stern, um, I, I just, that's not a sound world that I think fits this music. And that's not to say you can't enjoy it. If you grew up with those recordings or you've discovered them more recently and you like them and you, you like the depth that's put in there, that's great. But know what you're getting with it. Know that you're getting sort of a, a, a post-romantic interpretation of this music and I think box music survives well with it otherwise it wouldn't work in a piano arrangement for the grand piano um, and so what about this idea of it being a memorial to his wife it, if you if you have the time the 13 the 12 to let's say 16 minutes to listen to this piece I encourage you to go to a quiet place I encourage you to not try to multitask. Don't try to read the internet. Don't try to read a book while you listen to it. Don't try to do anything, but sit back, close your eyes, and try to appreciate this piece for what it is. 
I am fairly confident that if you are a human being, not a cat or a dog, but a human being, that you will feel something in this music. Uh, if not, then I'm wrong. But I, I have a feeling that if you give it your full attention, that you will get something out of putting your time into it. It's, it's that great a piece of music. And the funny thing about great pieces of music like this is that there are so many people recording it because it's so great. It's so famous. It's so... Um, it's so versatile. And that's why when you go and if you type in Bach Chacon in a search engine, you're going to find so many recordings. I hope you find one that maybe I haven't even played for you that you uh, come to find as your favorite. It's hard to pick a favorite. So I'm going to end this podcast with a little bit of a, a personal story. Um, so I told you at Christmas I got the recording by... Um, Jose Miguel Moreno on the lute. I was intrigued by the story in the booklet about it, um, about the interpretation and, and why they added singers. And I learned that there was yet another recording um, that supposedly did it better, that took the same concept of taking the research, um, applying these these vocal pieces on top of the violin part and presenting it. And this is a recording I always stayed away from. I don't know why. It just I didn't appeal to me. I'm like, ah, I've got enough copies of the piece already. The title of the album is Morimur. And the Morimur uh, is a collaboration between Christoph Poppen and the Hilliard Ensemble. So the Hilliard Ensemble, a multi-voice ensemble, not just two singers. And Christoph Poppen is a violinist and conductor. And in this case, he plays a Baroque violin and presents the Chaconne uh, with singing. And I will tell you that I listened to it. I love the Hilliard Ensemble. I like the collaboration they did earlier with recording of the Webern Richard Carr, which is an arrangement of Bach's six-part Richard Carr from the musical offering. I like that CD a lot. They also recorded... Krieslag and Todes Banen, B2V number four, a cantata by Bach. I, I thought it was a really good CD. And similarly, on the ECM New Series label, uh, I heard the Hilliard Ensemble do a collaboration with the, um, uh, the jazz saxophonist Jean Garberek. And uh, you may have heard of this. It was, it, was pretty, it was a pretty big deal when it came out. They took uh, some Renaissance polyphony and they mixed it with saxophone. And the saxophonist, Mr. Garberick, basically pretended like he was one of the vocalists and improvised on top of the polyphony. And it was a very interesting sort of new age approach to old music. And I, I had a love-hate relationship with it. I still listen to that CD. It's still uh, what I appreciated what they did is they gave us the piece by itself unadulterated with the, with the saxophone and you're sort of presented with this this really strange proposition what do i do when i have these two things that don't belong together come together and is there something something new that comes out of that and and what how are we to appreciate that as art these are the types of things that came to mind when i heard morimer i was somewhat surprised because i don't know what I, what rock i was under where i didn't know all this uh, the excitement over this research of this discovery of, of counting measures and notes and, and and thinking about what Bach was up to at the time of composition. But 
the recording I referenced earlier by Enrico Onofri, he he mentions that the latest research in his in his notes suggests that this was a uh, an elegy to his past wife, and he does something very interesting. He inserts an extra track in the partita. He gives us a sixth track, one that precedes the Shakona. And I'm going to play for you uh, track number nine, and I'll give you once again the beginning of this piece, track number 10, and then we'll talk about what, what that is. I have to tell you, I really, I really like this man, <laughs> Mr. Onofre. He, uh, he's adding his own little ornaments and and he's doing his own thing there, and I really like it. It is so fresh, um, his approach to to the piece, and it's authentic to him. And his his point that I think he tries to make in the liner notes is that, um. He's really trying to pick up as much as he can off the score. And that is it's a somewhat dangerous proposition, if you will. But if you if you consider that maybe Bach took his time in writing this, he made a very nice-looking uh, score that he wrote. Um, you know, how do we treat things like spaces between notes? Does that, that mean we put space in there? Uh, what do certain little things in the calligraphy mean? Uh, of course, we're not looking at printed music, maybe from 100 years before. We're looking at something that was handwritten by the composer. Um, and in some cases, Bach's music wasn't, was, was, was handwritten, but it was written by a copyist or his, his second wife, Anna Magdalena. Uh, she was famous for copying out his scores as well. But what clues were left behind? And so when you're reading off the score and you have um, uh, one of the foremost Baroque violinists doing some things like this. It's so exciting because it, it, it adds a freshness to it. Uh, he actually ends up performing this piece rather, um, I believe, on the more on the quick side. I'm going to check here. Yeah, he, he, he reads the Chacon in 11 minutes and 15 seconds. So you consider that to maybe 13, 14. He's, he's kind of pushing ahead there and does not believe that, that it needs to be drawn out into this, uh, this huge piece. So he, he, he opts for 
kind of pushing through the phrases. And again, it adds a freshness. Um, I don't, I can't say that this is like my favorite recording ever of the Chaconne, but it certainly is one I would recommend that you seek out. Uh, it certainly revealed some nuances to me. But what, what about that little quotation? So he decides to quote the uh, some of the, the music that is referenced as uh, the bedrock or the, the, the foundation of the Chaconne, and he inserts it in there. And at first, I really didn't like it at all. What is that? Uh, if you were uneducated and hadn't read the notes and, and it wasn't sure what was going on, you're like, was this extra music that Bach added? Would Bach have performed it that way? I would say no. It, it wasn't in the score. And so I asked questions like, does it belong in the CD? Well, luckily, we can mute track nine. We don't have to hear that when we're listening to it, so we can take it out. And I, I knowing that, uh, I certainly can understand why someone would want to reference this 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 compelling evidence uh, about the genesis of this particular piece, this fifth movement of Bach's second partita. Um, and I wanted to keep um, the Morimer version of this uh, as the last thing I added here. And I, I told you before there's a little personal story to this. Uh, I listened to the CD and I was conflicted with the philosophy behind performing source material on top. And I understand if I was teaching a music history class, this would be like the recording I would go to because I would play it and I would I would challenge my students to question whether or not uh, this music fit together. Is it true that Bach did this? Or if we'd already made up our mind that, there, that, that the evidence was uh, uncontested. The article, by the way, comes out in German and I'm not really good at reading German, so I've not actually read it myself. But the evidence seems pretty clear that there's there's a strong correlation as you hear it, right? You, it's, it's hard to just see it for some of us. We have to actually hear it, realize. And so this recording does it. But this recording goes a step beyond just illustrating, which I think the, uh, the earlier recording I played with singing did for us. This one, I think, is uh, somewhere in between giving us an illustration and what they were trying to do, what the same record producer, Manfred Escher, was trying to do in the, um, the recording with John Garbarek. Are we trying to make new music out of this? And I really struggled with it. I didn't like it uh, at all. I decided that this was not something that Bach would have ever heard Maybe in his head, maybe in his head he's heard this, but I was convinced this was this was wrong, this was not good, and I immediately, after a couple of listens, decided this was a mistake. I, I shouldn't have sought out this recording. It was better that I never get it. And I have to say that my mind my mind changed after some time. Um, I'm going through some difficult things in my life right now. Um, member of the family is is very ill. member of the family won't be around with us for much longer. Had this piece playing on the background, and something just hit. And it literally could have been any piece of music, of good music, where your emotions are at a certain level, and the music just amplifies it, and all of a sudden you stop, and you're like, oh. And you have sort of this emotional outpouring, if you will. Uh, or this a tipping point, right? Uh, too much input, 
things go over. Uh, but it was at this point that I finally recognized the beauty that was in this sort of collaboration between a vocal ensemble and a violinist that I really didn't think belonged together, but all of a sudden um, it seemed to make sense to me. And I won't say that you'll have that same experience, but I will tell you that I am now converted. Uh, I have, am enjoying this, uh, this piece. It means something to me now, especially since that, that personal connection that was made when I was reflecting on what was going on in my life and hearing this and sort of bringing that out into the open and allowing me to sort of reflect on everything going on, including the beauty of this piece. I think it survives. And all I'll say is if Bach Chacon can survive on a harpsichord, if it can survive for a guitar, if it can survive in all these arrangements that I haven't even mentioned that you can go out and find, um, I think it works here. And so I'm going to give you a taste of Maury Murr featuring the Hilliard Ensemble and the violinist Christoph Poppen. This uh, came out a number of years ago, 2001, on the ECM New Series label. Thank you, listeners, for enduring a rather long edition of BachCast. But we had to go long. This is a very significant uh, work by Bach. Not only uh, four great movements, but the, the big Shakona uh, that ends the second partita. My name is John Hendren, and you've been listening to an episode of BachCast. Uh, my goal is to produce 100 episodes, uh, each one taking a piece of that I like by Johann Sebastian Bach and giving you a comparison of what other artists around the world have done with this music, point out things I like about performances, give you a little bit of history of some of the music and my own perspectives. You can find more episodes of BachCast at my website at bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org. You'll also find there Baroque Review, uh, my reviews of Baroque and classical recordings. And I, again, thank you for listening and continuing to be a supporter of this podcast.